episode 42 of the Movie Brats Podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I've started teaching again online, but I'm just staying inside still as much as I can. You? Uh, not teaching, but staying inside. Uh, the heat is starting to get to me, so maybe staying inside will start to happen even more than maybe it was previously. Um, today, we're going to do something slightly different and do something called the Director's Game, which Jonathan and uh, <laughs> raised my awareness to that they did on the Big Picture podcast by The Ringer. This game, I think, was created by Sam Ismail, or at least popularized it, uh, who created I- I'm sorry, Mr. Robot, I was going to say iRobot. Among other things, uh, Jonathan, do you want to lay down the ground rules for this uh, director's game that we are about to play? Okay, so maybe I won't have exactly 100% the rules he has, but I'm going to stick to pretty much what he had. Uh, it's the first feature theatrical film that a director has made, what decade it came out in. So we are going to go from the 20s to the 2010s and pick uh, our number one favorite director who had their debut that decade and then the runner-up. And so feature is just, we're going to say 60 minutes or longer. We're going to, because you could go, well, if the movie's 53 minutes, that's pretty much a feature, but what Mm -hmm. if it's 49 minutes? And so we're saying 60 minutes or longer. It has to have played in a theater at a film festival, we're doing the year it premiered, so we're not going to do a thing where it's like the Virgin Suicides premiered at film festival in 99 and played in the U.S. in 2000, so it's going to be a 90s film. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to count segments if it's an anthology film, but I will count if it's directed with more than one person like the Wachowskis Mm -hmm. or um, Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam directing Monty Python, the Holy Grail. And just to make it reasonable, uh, I'm going to say only films that have survived. We're not going to go back and say, oh, this director did a movie in 1927 that was is lost. Like we're only going to have movies that are available And so I just want to start out by saying a lot of the earliest directors like John Ford and William Wyler, they made many, 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 many films in the silent era. A number of them are lost. And also it's hard to tell exactly how long they are because you can't always trust IMDb that it's some will say 50 minutes, 53 minutes, and then they'll just say one hour. Now, Uh does that mean it's literally 60 minutes or are they just like a placeholder? Like they don't even really know how long it is and they think it's about an hour. So I tried to be as strict as I can, uh, as I could with the rules, but uh-huh. so uh, the basic rules uh, were going from the 1920s by decade, and we're going to pick our favorite directors who had their film premiere. And we're not saying like because of their debut, mm-hmm. their film is the best. We're looking at their whole career mm-hmm. and its personal opinion. We're doing our personal favorite directors. And we're kind of just balancing a mixture of their greatest films, but also considering the longevity of their careers. Mm-hmm. They're film directors who started out amazing and like their first few films really mean a lot to us. And then we maybe even haven't seen their later movies or <laughs> they really dropped off, you know, in quality. But we're gonna... sometimes the other way around. Like I've seen a lot of later Luis Buñuel movies, but not a whole lot of his earlier ones. Right. So 
Um, we're going to start. It's like I said, it's hard to go back before the 1920s because it's, you know, for one thing, a lot of those weren't feature films. They're at least, <laughs> yeah. you know, under 60 minutes. Yeah. So I just want to with each decade, I'm going to list uh, some of the major directors who mm-hmm. had a premiere uh, that decade. So in the 1920s, Dorothy Arzner, Frank Capra, Charles Chaplin, Sergei Eisenstein, <laughs> Sergei, Sergei. Sergey M. Eisenstein, <laughs> Howard Hawks, Alfred Hitchcock, Buster Keaton, Leo McCary, Kinsey Mijaguchi, F.W. Murnau, Ozu, Jean Renoir, King Vidor, Joseph von Sternberg, and William Wyler. This is pretty loaded. I, th- I mean, all of these are going to be loaded, but just looking at like the golden age of Hollywood and stuff like that, the amount of directors that have contributed to some of the best movies of the the studio era. A lot of them made their debuts during the 1920s. For me, there's a very clear number one, which is Alfred Hitchcock. Um, I don't think I've seen any of his movies from the 1920s. I know The Lodger is supposed to be a very famous one, but I think the earliest movie I've seen by Hitchcock might be Jamaica Inn or The 39 Steps. They're both. Have like you seen The Lady Vanishes or The Original Man Who Knew Too Much? I've seen Lady Vanishes. What is that, 37? 36 or something. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Uh, I, I've seen some of his silent films. The Lodger is on Criterion Blu-ray, and then there's also on that Blu-ray uh, a, another silent film of his. And there was a set that came out from Kino recently uh-huh. that has um, – five of his films that are early and i think a number of the, a number of them are silent films um but yeah i mean people i don't know if people realize that he did many many silent films did a number of oh, films yeah. in britain before he came to america and did rebecca and i think which worked was, in germany before he was in britain as like an assistant director at ufa right yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's interesting, the first film he did when he came to America was Rebecca, right? And then that one best, best picture, picture. Yeah. Right. It's the only film of his that won best picture. And also a, a, one of many amazing directors that never won a competitive Oscar mm-hmm. for best director, shockingly. It is insane. Yeah. I mean, just looking at the, I mean, you've got Rear Window, Vertigo, The Birds, Psycho. The Man Who Knew Too Much, <laughs> Shadow of a Doubt. I mean, it's hard for anyone to, to compare, really, with Alfred Hitchcock's filmography. So for me, he's clearly number one. Two is a bit tougher here. You've well, got some you really good... Well, do you want me to go my number one? Yeah, let's How... do your number yeah. one first. Okay, for me, my number one is Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. Uh, partially because he directed my favorite film of all time, City Lights. And I think that, I mean, obviously he's one of the great comedy directors of all time. His films are still hilarious, but, and he, without question influenced, you know, over a hundred years of comedy, you know, he's an incredibly important filmmaker, but not just comedy. I mean, Mm -hmm. he was a brilliant filmmaker the way, I mean, and he was one that, you know, one of the first that wrote, directed, starred in his films, often composed them. I mean, he really was in complete command of his craft. And he was one of the few people that had real creative control. Like he made the films completely on his own terms. Supposedly, I think it's still in the record book that the scene where the blind flower girl and the little tramp first uh, come in contact, he shot it over 300 times. Wow, really? And he shot City Lights for like almost, I think, about a whole year. Wow. Because he wanted just to do it. And he had uh, a silent film when there were no more silent films, yeah. 1931. And even 1936, Modern Times mm-hmm. is almost completely silent. Pseudo-silent. 
<laughs> yeah, it's uh, the, both those films uh, had soundtracks, and so the sound was recorded for uh, for the film. But mm. there's no dialogue in City Lights, and there's very little in Modern Times. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I can't deny that par- a big part of it is because City Lights is my favorite film of all time. But my goodness, he only made about a dozen feature films. Uh, I've seen all of them now, except. Have you ever seen his last film, The Countess from Hong Kong, which Mm-mm. stars Marlon Brando, Sophia Loren, and Tippi Hedren? Wow, all-star cast. <laughs> yeah, and supposedly Brando hated the experience, even though he adored Chaplin uh-huh. as a filmmaker um, and Chaplin as a cameo in the film. But uh, The Gold Rush, mm-hmm. The Circus, City Lights, Modern Times, The Great Dictator, Monsieur Verdot. I mean, some of the best comedies ever made. So Charlie Chaplin's my number one. And beloved internationally because, you know, silent films, you don't have to speak English to understand the films of Charlie Chaplin. I don't, I mean, it's hard to say if any filmmakers had more impact on, uh, I don't know, the way movies are perceived by a worldwide audience than Charlie Chaplin did. I mean, Hitchcock is close, but. Yeah, I mean, it's like Chaplin was like the first movie star, you Mm -hmm. would say. I, I would also argue started that United Artists, right? The studio, right, was one of the founding. But I mean, this is loaded. I mean, if you want to go for like impact on film history, Sergei Eisenstein is definitely one to consider. But being a uh, <laughs> myopic American, I, I mean, Kenji Mizuguchi also really good. <sighs> John Renoir. Oh man, will I be? A I know myopic what, American? I know what my number two is. What's your number two? I think I have to go with John Renoir. Just because the strength of the Grand Illusion and uh, the rules of the game are just, you know, two of the top, however you want to rank them. They're definitely two of the top hundred movies ever made. I think, I don't know, but Charlie Chaplin, too. I'll go with John Renoir. You pick Chaplin. I'm going to give my runner-up to John Renoir. Okay, well, we and we should say we took a class together at NYU on John Renoir. Yes. Um, by the way, I don't think we don't need to necessarily mention this because other people know. Did I mention to you that Simon, our professor, announced that he's retiring? Oh, really? I didn't see that. Yeah. So he was a great professor. So William oh, yes. Simon, uh, au revoir. Shout out. Teaching. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my number two, I love comedy. I have to say Buster Keaton's number two. And uh-huh. I will say that really, you know. Over Hitchcock. I, crazy. No, no, Buster Keaton. I mean, Hitchcock's way up there. I mean, he's, you know, one of the greatest filmmakers ever, but I adore comedy. And they're the reason the the classic comedies and the universal monster films are what got me into film when I was young. And I think you could argue Buster Keaton is even a better director, filmmaker than Chaplin. Uh, because more intricate he really... camera setups and more innovative sort of technique for film. Definitely more innovative in the use of stunts, which is just insane. For Buster yeah, Keaton. I mean, Buster Keaton, some of his greatest films, Sherlock Jr., The yes. General, Seven Chances, The Navigator. Um, oh, my gosh. He's our hospitality. He is also a writer, director, uh, actor, you know, and he did uh, not just his own stunts, but other people that wouldn't do their stunts, he would do their stunts. And he's supposed to be. I know he would break, he broke basically every bone in his body at least yeah. once. He I know that he had neck. a really serious accident on the general, right? With the whole uh, uh, Water well, Tower stunt. Or well, it's like uh, Sherlock Jr. Oh, okay, he, that's uh, it, yeah. 
yeah, he fell and he didn't realize till years later that he broke his neck. He went to a doctor and the doctor was like, you know, your neck's broken, right? And he's like, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> By the way, did I ever tell you that my father met and got to shake hands with Buster Keaton? Wow, you didn't? Yeah. Yeah, my dad lived uh, in Ohio, grew up there, and Buster Keaton was in a play, the musical Once Upon a Mattress, and he played the king, and my father knew someone that worked at the theater, and he got to go backstage and shake Buster Keaton's hand. That's amazing. So that's, like, really, really cool. You know, it's, like, towards, you know, the end of Chaplin, I mean, of Keaton's life. Yeah. And by the way, the two of them were in what movie together? Uh... What is it? The King in New York, something like that? Is that no, right? Limelight. 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 That's it. Yeah. Same. Right. Same era. Both of those fifties. Yeah. By the way, there is a direct. There is a well director and actor named Norman. Chaplin Lloyd. directed that movie, didn't he? Limelight. Yeah. Right. I would say Norman Lloyd is a character actor and director who's like a hundred and five, a hundred and six, who's still alive, who was in films by all four of these directors: Chaplin, wow. uh, Keaton, Jean Renoir. And Alfred Hitchcock during uh, he's American in period. Yeah. He's in Limelight, so it's not directed by Keaton, but he worked with all four of them. He was wow. in uh, a Renoir film. He was in, he's the guy uh, who falls off the Statue of Liberty in the Hitchcock film. Was it Sa- Saboteur? I think Saboteur. Yeah. 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 He's oh, wow. and he was in Trainwreck. Uh, most recently is one of his more recent films. So he's worked with everyone from Chaplin and Keaton to Judd Apatow. (laughs) But uh, anyway, shout outs for some other people from the 1920s, William Wyler and Howard Hawks. I mean, and Frank Capra tough for them not to make the top two for either of us because very influential to Hollywood cinema. And then, you know, F.W. Morneau, Sunrise, one of the great movies ever made. Morbid trivia. Did you know that Murnau died young in a car accident mm-hmm. and he uh, had his skull stolen from his grave a few years ago? Wow. Yeah. And he was gay. Did you know that? I did not know that, actually. Yeah. There is a rumor that he was um, uh, having he was uh, performing oral sex on his younger chauffeur in the car crash. And that's how he died. That's a rumor. You need to practice safe motoring. Yeah. Yeah. OK. <laughs> 1930s. Let's list some of the directors. Louise Bunel, Marcel Carnet, George Cooker, Max Ophuls, Otto Preminger, Michael Powell by himself, Carol Reed, Douglas Sirk, George Stevens, Jacques Tenour, James Whale, Billy Wilder, Fred Zinneman. This one is a little easier for me. I don't think as loaded as the 1920s. Being that it is Michael Powell by himself and not Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger forming the production and directing partnership of the archers, which may come, come up later for me. This is Billy Wilder in a runaway for the 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. That's number one. Billy Wilder, director of the apartment, some like it hot Sabrina, uh, double indemnity sunset Boulevard. I mean, so many classics of Hollywood cinema. Um, yeah, I mean, Billy Wilder's far and away. Number one for me. Yeah, he had a film in 1934 called Bad Seed, which I've never heard of. <laughs> but his, <laughs> his first like real American film that people know about is The Major and the Minor, starring uh, Gin, uh, Gin, Ginger Rogers. Um, and he's one of the directors from the old uh, classic Hollywood. I've actually seen a lot of his movies. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, it's like someone like George Stevens. I've not actually seen that many of his movies, I don't mm-hmm. think. I've seen, you know, a few. 
but uh, and someone like George Cukor, like you've seen a number of his yes. movies, but he's done so many. Yes. Um, most recently, I watched the 1933 version of Little Women, mm-hmm. but uh, Billy Wilder, yes, yeah, that's uh, without question my number one. Uh, what's your favorite of his? Uh, my favorite is The Apartment. That might be my favorite movie ever made. Uh, notable Best Picture winner, one of the great Best Picture winners of all time, 1960. Uh, it's yours... the last. I was gonna say it's the last black and white film to win Best Picture that was like in the era where they still regularly yes. made black and white films. The Artist and Schindler's List came out later, but yes, because then the big Technicolor epic started winning Best Picture, like yeah. uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Sound of Music, West Side Story. Right. And it's uh, my favorite. One of my top 10 films of all time is Dublin Dimnity, which mm-hmm. I don't know if there's ever been a perfect film, but Dublin Dimnity comes as close as I've ever seen to a perfect film. It is so brilliantly written. And it's just you just you, you just eat it up because it's just so entertaining and oh, um, amazing. And I, I and something like it hot is often ranked as the best comedy of all time. Mm-hmm. And it's still hilarious. I think one of his underrated movies, I always recommend one, two, three. Mm. I think that's a really good film with James Cagney, which was his last film for like 20 years before he came back uh, to do ragtime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the great like rat-a-tat-tat, amazing, fast, fast, fast dialogue movies. Um, but yeah, what would your number two be? I think my runner up is going to be George Cooker. Uh, what are some other ones you like I'm, of his? I mean, My Fair Lady, I think it's my favorite musical ever made. Born Yesterday, one of the great comedies of the 1950s, William Holden. Uh, Adam's Rib, Philadelphia Story, Gaslight. Uh, I mean, really, really good movies. David Copperfield, I love the book. Not not my favorite adaptation of David Copperfield. Well, it's one of the few that is available and hopefully will be bettered by the one that comes out this year. But a disappointing adaptation. If it comes but. out this year, <laughs> yes, I keep saying come out this year for stuff that I have no idea about. But, but yeah, mostly George Cukor for My Fair Lady in Philadelphia Story, and the 1954 a Star Is Born, which I think is the best version of A Star Is Born. Um, so yeah, for those specifically for those three, George Cukor for me is the runner-up for the 1930s. Did you know he was gay? I did know he was gay, and I, he also was an uncredited director on uh, Gone with the Wind. Right. Um, my number two, even though I've actually only seen four of his movies, uh, like I was saying, the classic comedies were a major impact and the others were the universal monster films. So I'm going to say James Whale, also a homosexual. Mm-hmm. Um, but he directed Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man and The Old Dark House. Those are the only four films of his I've seen. And they're all terrific. I mm-hmm. think Bride of Frankenstein is one of the five best horror films ever made and it's my favorite film sequel of all time i think it's a masterpiece it's so beautiful and haunting and funny and it's karloff's best performance probably and um i do want to see showboat which came out recently in the criterion collection on blu-ray and he did a lot of movies it's funny in the film gods and monsters that uh, ian mckellen plays him and it's about him later in life he talks about how Showboat was like his favorite film and that, you know, I think he legitimately loved the monster films, but he did many, many other films that besides those horror films, but those were the ones that were he was best known for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't actually seen any of his movies. <laughs> You've I, never seen Frankenstein? or No, Brian I haven't. I know the really famous scene in Frankenstein, and I have seen the clip of him with the flowers and the little girl that... I haven't even seen the whole movie, and it's like a, a very touching, heartbreaking scene. 
Well, that's one of the very few films that the first time I saw it, it genuinely scared me. And I was yeah. young. But the the fact that he doesn't realize that she's going to die and he throws her in the river, it's just really uh, disturbing. It's very disturbing. Uh, yeah. But you should watch Frankenstein, but then really watch Bride, Bride of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. It truly is a masterpiece. Uh, it's one of the greatest films ever made. Only 75 minutes. Wow. Yeah, and I just want to mention the old Dark House has a crazy cast. So it's Boris Karloff, Charles Lawton, Melvin oh. Douglas, oh. Gloria Stewart, and um, I feel like there's someone else like major that's in it. But yeah, it's it's also very funny. His movies often had humor in them. But uh, those the so mine are both of us Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder, being, yeah, and, and, and then uh, Cooker for me, George Cooker, and yeah. James Whale for you. Look at that, yeah. the first consensus number one. I feel yeah. like the 40s, where we might have four different picks. I'm looking at this list, and it is pretty loaded. All right. Well, I'll go through mine. Uh, I'll just go through the big list I've made. From the 1940s, Ingmar Bergman, Oof. Robert Brisson, Oof. Jean Cocteau, Jules Dassin, Victoria DeSica, Stanley Donnan, slash Gene Kelly, if you want. <laughs> Samuel Fuller, John Huston, Eli Kazan, uh. Akira Kurosawa, wow. David Lean, uh. Ida Lupino, <laughs> Shush. <laughs> Joseph A. Uh, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, Anthony Mann, Jean-Pierre Melville, Vincent Minnelli, Lawrence Olivier, Michael Powell, and Emmerich Pressburger, Nicholas Ray, Roberto Rossellini, Don Siegel, John Sturges, Preston Sturges, Jacques Tati, Lucino Visconti, Orson Welles, Robert Wise. I mean, that's a loaded list right there. I mean, right. seriously, some of the best directors, international and American and British. This is the first one where I'm having like a real crisis about who to pick. You want me to say who mine is? <laughs> yeah, you go with your 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 number one first. Because I've seen almost all of his films now, I've been catching up in his last films. I'm gonna put Ingmar Bergman at number one. I had seen ten of his movies uh, before I went to the retrospective for his hundredth birthday at Film Forum a little over ten years ago, and then I saw twenty five of his films in five weeks in a theater. And then since then, I've seen a few of his movies catching up like the serpent's egg and Fanny and Alexander and face to face. So really the only film I have left of his is Sarah Ban, his sequel to scenes from a marriage. And I mean, it's when people talk about great international directors, they go, Oh, Ingmar Bergman, uh -huh. Federico Fellini. It's like, he's like the first director they mentioned, or like one of the three he is you know, I feel like we're going to say this with every director. He's one of the greatest directors ever yes. made. You know, and whoever, so um, many quality, important films. It's not like he just made two or three. It's like 15. Yeah. And I a lot of his earlier ones that I went to in a really compact amount of time, they kind of blended together. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, Persona, Smiles of a Summer Night, The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, Sawdust and Tinsel, The Magician. I mentioned uh, Penn and Alexander cries and whispers his uh faith trilogy including the silence i mean these are just some of the most virgin spring oh yeah Summer with my Monica. yeah my favorite i think uh personally is persona which i think yes. is one of the most enigmatic and brilliant and still every time you see it it just it brings up something new in your mind you see it a different way Oh yeah, I mean, Persona is a movie you're watching that's like this is just so different than anything else I've ever seen, and it was made like almost sixty years ago, which is really crazy. Um, 
this man i'm having a really tough crisis of conscience was my number one right here and this is my, my favorite this is my favorite this okay. is not like i mean i'm just i'm specifying to you this isn't like this is the best director because i mean bergman is hard to argue kurosawa is hard to argue but my god i'm gonna go with michael powell and emmerich pressburger also known as the archers maybe the greatest duo directing team of all time you got emmerich pressburger doing the scripts michael powell the visionary uh, <laughs> uh visual filmmaker with the incredible pioneering use of technicolor man i mean just the run they went on in the 1940s life and death of colonel blood one of my favorite movies ever made a matter of life and death black narcissus the red shoes i know where i'm going just oh my god just incredible movies super influential Black Narcissus, they shot it in England. It looks like they're in the Himalayas. Uh, their use of matte paintings is incredible. I mean, it's, like, better than most people's use of, like, really nice CGI today. The Powell and Pressburger matte paintings just, like, totally blow them out of the water. I don't know. I don't know if there's ever been a greater uh, filmmaker, well, filmmaking duo, filmmaker, who have, like, combined. Well, we might to some of them. Yeah. Well, yeah. But I've just combined all the sort of different elements that make up cinema with the camera movement, dialogue, uh, the color, the mise-en-scene, all sort of different stuff. It's very few filmmakers put together all those elements in a more uh, visually stunning and emotional, emotionally impacting sort of way than Powell and Pressburger. So for my favorites, I mean, it's Powell and Pressburger. Uh, how many of their movies have you seen, Jonathan? I've only seen The Red Shoes. And I've seen Peeping Tom, which I yes, think it's only just Michael, Michael Powell. Yes, right. Um, and I saw the Red Shoes on 35 millimeter restored Ooh. at the Museum of the Moving Image, which was really spectacular. I mean, just the the color—you you can't get better than that. I bet that. the the really big sort of opera, or not opera, but ballet sequence in the middle looked incredible there. Yeah, it's just really stunning. So. <laughs> I mean, uh, it is. I can't comment too much besides the red shoes being one of the most see, lush. See more of their movies. Black Narcissus is amazing. I, know, yeah. I mean, Matter of Life and Death is incredible. Also known as Stairway to Heaven in America, one of the great David Niven performances. Um, and you know who um, Michael Powell ended up marrying until he died? Thelma Schoonmaker, the longtime right. editor for uh, Martin Scorsese. Correct. Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, major, major influence on Martin Scorsese, among many other American filmmakers and international filmmakers. So my number two, partially because I've been rewatching all of his films with my friend Luke, and I just love his films, uh, Preston Sturges, uh, one of the great writer-directors in the classic Hollywood era. He had written a number of scripts and he had this one, the great McGinty, which they really wanted to make. And he told them that he would sell them the script for very little money if he could direct it. And he made eight amazing movies in just a very small amount of time. Uh, films such as the lady Eve Sullivan's travels, the Palm beach story. And my favorite is the miracle of Morgan's Creek, which I think is just ferociously funny. It's so fast paced and it's so amazing that it came out when it did the subject matter of that film, how he got away with making a film about a woman who gets knocked up after being drunk at a party with a bunch of soldiers and then finds out that she's married and has, uh, and she's pregnant. This is from it's the forties. Yeah, yeah, that's the basic premise <laughs> that's of the amazing. film. 
Yeah, and it's just the. I mean, that script could possibly be like 150 pages, but the movie's like 98 minutes long. I mean, it is just so fast paced. I mean, it's just, and there's so many scenes where they're done in one shot or it's broken up into like two shots. He let the comedy play out in master shots, and it's just this amazing ballet of dialogue and movement of characters on screen. And he didn't make that many films after that string of amazing hits he did a movie called the great moment which they took out of his hands and re-edited um and then he did another really great film a little bit later called unfaithfully years with rex harrison but then he kind of never really was able to get back into you know the great films that he made and he died pretty young but preston sturges if you've never seen his films i recommend starting with the lady eve and sullivan's travels and like i said my personal favorites the miracle of morgan's creek i think that's probably just the most funny film he ever made see for this is where the decision for me becomes incredibly difficult i wish i could give a tie but i don't i don't want to you can mention a few honorable mentions but what's your number two you got to pick a two from the just straight from the gut i'm going with david lean which makes a nice little thematic connection with talon pressburger because david lean served as the editor for 49th Parallel, one of the first uh, collaborations between Emmerich Powell and Michael Pressburger. <laughs> Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. That was a total switch around right there. But, I mean, David Lean was a very important director for me sort of getting interested in cinema with uh, Bridge on the River Kwai specifically. It was a movie I saw uh, like 11 or 12 that was very much blown away by. And then Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago. That great run of epic movies from the 50s to the 60s and then his uh brief encounter of 45 and then his two charles dickens adaptations great expectations from 1946 and oliver twist from 1948 uh, i mean it was so hard to separate him from akira kurosawa though who was sort of like the first international director i got very seriously uh into his body of work with seven samurai and yojimbo and rashomon it's a very difficult choice but just that for would my, be my personal like, one, David Lane mention. for me. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to leave Kurosawa because he's like truly one of the great directors of all time. But this, this is where the personal preference comes into it because if I'm just judging by like impact on movie history, I'll probably put Kurosawa over, you know, Powell and Pressburger. But personal preference comes into this, and god damn it, choosing between those three is uh, hopefully I don't come across a more difficult choice in the the following decades. Yeah, I need to see uh, more of uh, his films. I've seen Bridge on the River Kwai. I've seen Lawrence of Arabia, but I need to see Brief Encounter. I need to see Dr. Zhivago. I haven't seen his Charles Dickens adaptations. But, I mean, Bridge on the River Kwai, it's interesting. That was like his first big movie, yes. his epic movie. And then he's best known for that along yes. with his Dickens adaptations. But it's funny, he hadn't done those movies. But No, then. it started off being a lot more like intimate very British, uh, sort of like not much international appeal to his movies, to be honest. Very sort of specifically British movies. I think Summertime was the first one that was like a American sort of movie. That's one with Catherine Hepburn. Uh, but yeah, Bridge on the River Kwai was just so much different than anything else he'd ever done. And then it just sort of became what he did with Ryan's Daughter and Passage to India. I mean, he didn't really make another like sort of intimate small movie after making Bridge on the River Kwai. Right. Well, let's go on to the 1950s, which a lot of people think of as being kind of not one of the best decades in American film, but there are some amazing works that came out. So 1950s debut by Robert Aldridge, Robert Altman, 
Michelangelo Anatoni, Richard Brooks, John Cassavetes, Claude Chabot, Roger Corman, Blake Edwards, Federico Fellini, John Frankenheimer, Stanley Kramer, Stanley Kubrick, Sidney Lumet, Louis Mal, Arthur Penn, Satyajit Rai, Alan René, Martin Ritt, Francois Truffaut, Anya Svarda, Franco Zeffirelli. A lot of important French New Wave uh, filmmakers in that one. And also some, like Robert Altman, it's amazing. He made his debut in 1957. You think of like MASH being his big breakout. Um, I'm going to assume we both have the same number one. Our, my number one is Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, there's no question. Yeah, me. I mean, if you're just going by like grade point average of how many of his movies were truly great movies, it's pretty much every one of them. And uh, Well, the first two aren't very good. Well, I mean, The Killing's pretty good. No, uh, Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss. Okay. I actually don't think I've ever seen Fear and Desire. He didn't want you to because he <laughs> like it was so hard to see for a long time. Um, but it is restored on Blu-ray now. So I've seen every I've seen every one of his movies because he had three documentary films too. Oh, really? Yeah, little shorts, I mean. Uh-huh. But um But I mean, yeah, yeah Doctor Strange Love, Spartacus, Paths of Glory, 2001: A Space Odyssey. <laughs> Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket. It's some of the like, truly great movies ever made. And it's interesting how most of his films are in some way a genre film, yeah. and almost all of his films are adaptations. Yeah, that's true. A lot like Hitchcock in that way. Right. Uh, my favorite's 2001. It's my second favorite film of all time, and Dr. Strangelove is also in my top ten. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I've We've talked about him in other episodes, and we've gone into detail about some of his films. I mean, he's a master. He was kind of crazy a little bit, probably, and obsessive. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, filming – I was listening to an interview with Gary Oldman, and, you know, Harvey Keitel was originally in Eyes Wide Shut. Really? And he was, like, walking – he would play the Sidney Pollock role ah. originally. And he was, like, walking through a door, like, 68 times, and Harvey Keitel just finally went – I'm done with this shit. He just like walked <laughs> off. And he's like, I'm done. I'm not doing it. And he just, and he replaced him with Sidney Pollack. That's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, I'm on the side of letting directors be kind of crazy if mm-hmm. they get a film as good as, you know. Yeah. As long as they're not film. abusive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they can be mean in, if, if, if like, you know, you can go to bat with an actor, mm-hmm. you know, and argue with them as long as there's an understanding, yeah. like we're going to be okay at the end of the day. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Kubrick is a master. I mean, it's, it's hard to say more than what's been said so many times, including what we've said before. In previous oh yeah. Episodes. I mean, but just, what'd your number two be? Well, just one last thing on Kubrick yeah. is just such a huge uh, impact on just the way people get into cinema. Would you say for a lot of people, he's probably like the first really serious auteur if like people are looking at movies online like what movies should i watch kubrick is probably going to be like the first uh filmmaker where they like check out the whole filmography so i don't know i think kubrick's like a good introduction for like art cinema for people right because even though a film like a clockwork orange is really disturbing it's incredibly entertaining in its own way and like 2001 is one of the great like classic films to go see in a movie theater and Dr. Strangelove is just one of the funniest films ever made and then The Shining is one of the you know most it's one of the most classic uh, horror films of all time Mm. and I love Barry Lyndon a lot and not everyone loves that one but (laughs) yeah but as far as costume dramas go it's pretty exciting right 
But yeah, so, so it's easier to get into Kubrick than someone like Michelangelo Antonioni. But uh, yeah. for my runner-up, man, this is a tough one. Uh, again, it comes down to personal preference. I'm going to go with Robert Altman. Um, Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. Totally matched up on that one. I was thinking maybe Cassavetes, maybe Fellini. But I think ultimately Altman, I enjoy more of his movies more than... Like the heights of Fellini, like eight and a half. Um La Strada, I mean, those are really, really high highs, but Altman, I think I just enjoy his movies more than Fellini's. Yeah, so one of Altman's films, Nashville, is in my top ten of all time, and that's an American masterpiece. And I mean I mean he had some not great films. Oh yeah. his string in the seventies is amazing. You had, and what's interesting is that he was like about 45 when mash came out. Like he yeah. was not one of these young kids from the new Hollywood era. Like he had been, he, cause he's in the fifties. He directed a film called the delinquents that came out in 1957. Mm-hmm. And then he directed a film, you know, a lot of television, yes. but it, he didn't I'll mash is only events like, among other things. Yeah. Combat and the Virginian, I think, but he, and a bunch of industrial films mm-hmm. and he did a really interesting film uh, before mash called countdown, which is a early space program film starring before the Godfather, Robert Duvall and James Caan. Huh. Um, but he directed just, let me list some of the ones from the seventies. You got mash Brewster McCloud, McCabe and Mrs. Miller yes. images, three women, the long goodbye, um california split yeah which just got released on amazon prime uncut for the first time like in a long time they've added like the uncut version and i even like popeye i think (laughs) it's like uh i it's like really charming and it's just i like how it's generally the 80s were sort of uh lost years though it seems like for all men and then big comeback in the 90s with the player and shortcuts the player was like a sensation when it came out Right. And I think that he never really went away. He was constantly making films, but mm-hmm. they, he was making like smaller films. Some of uh, them were adaptations of plays like Sam Shepard plays or streamers. Uh, a number of them were uh, come back to the five and dime Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. A lot of them were based on plays, mm-hmm. smaller movies. But um, have you ever seen Secret Honor? Mm-mm. You know what that is? That's in the Criterion Collection. It is the actor Philip Baker Hall. You know, he is for mm-hmm. a bunch of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson films. And mm-hmm. it's a monologue of him playing Richard Nixon. Wow. And it's really interesting. It's like kind of him going a little bit crazy and like just giving his opinion about what happened. Uh, that's one of his interesting 80s films. Yeah. But- uh, yeah, oh, the, and then he ended. Uh, I'm. I feel really happy. It makes it, it means something to me that I got to see his last film in a theater in its original release. I mm-hmm. saw a Prey Home Companion, which is like a he was like the perfect director to do that, where it's like this large ensemble cast, and he's such an influential director, and especially someone like Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was actually on the set going to take over directing if Altman ended up not being well enough to finish the film. He was like the replacement Mm. on hand director. And he met, I don't know if he met his wife there, but Maya Rudolph is in the movie and Mm -hmm. Paul Thomas Anderson ended up marrying her. But yeah, my favorite's Nashville, but I also, you know, mash McCabe and Mrs. Miller is one of the most gorgeous films ever made. It's one of, I would say it's the best Western of the last 50 years. Yeah. uh, It's definitely up there for, I mean, for me, uh, Gosford Park from 2001. It was definitely the first Robert Altman movie I ever saw. I saw it near its release, and 
that still holds a special place in my heart, even to this day. Yeah, um, and I just want to recommend another one that's uh, – it's one of his better-known films, but it's certainly one of his most enigmatic films. Have you ever seen Three Women? No, I haven't. Yeah, it's in the Criterion Collection. It's Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duvall, and they work in a convalescent home in Texas, and it makes a really interesting companion piece with Persona, and you could even make it a trifecta with – Mulholland Drive. It's oh. about like women and like personas and you know shifting identities. Yeah, it's very interesting and uh, and it's amazing the films that came out in the seventies. The story is um, Alan Ladd Jr. was running the studio and Altman had a dream, the basic idea of three women, and he was going to the airport and he said, "Let me go pitch this movie to Laddie." And he said, "Don't even turn the car off." And he was with someone in the car and he went inside of the studio and told uh, Alan Ladd Jr. the basic idea of three women. He's like, can we make it into a picture? And he's like, sure. And then he got back in the car and made his flight, and they made the movie for a little bit of money. It's like that would never happen. 70s were a different time. Right. Uh, So Altman, it means so much to me. Uh, Brilliant. You know, in the way he used sound Mm -hmm. and his films were so improvised. Like, did you know that Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland tried to get him fired off of M.A.S.H.? I know um, that Elliot Gould really didn't like the experience, which is funny because he's ended up working with them multiple times after that. Right. And the it's funny that it won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay because it's based on a novel. And it, it was so not – he really went off script. Uh-huh. I mean he always thought of a script. It's like some people at Tarantino, like every comma and uh-huh. uh and a eh is in the script. Altman – the script was like a blueprint. Like he improvised, <laughs> there's overlapping dialogue. Yes. So, uh, you know, just start with a string of films in the 70s, mm-hmm. you know, MASH and go on. It's And they did a great later ones, like we said, The Player and Shorts Cuts. But, I mean, it, it's, it's unparalleled in the 70s mm-hmm. pretty much. Yeah, one of the great directors of multi-character narratives. Uh, it's hard right. to think of. Actually, maybe Paul Thomas Anderson, who you mentioned, is the only sort of person who holds a candle as far as that is concerned. Right. And I just want to say that I also would pick very close to the top of the list uh, Fellini because yeah. Eight and a Half is my favorite yes. foreign language film of all time. Even though I've actually only seen about eight of his films and mm-hmm. like they're almost like all like within his first ten features. Mm-hmm. I need to go back and see his ones that got really opulent. Like you yeah. know, Amarcord is a really good late yeah. career one. Yeah, I need to see that. So the sixties, I got to take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah, this, this is loaded. Is, this is loaded. Yeah. Because it's a lot of the great international filmmakers making their first films and the start of New Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I'm not even going to list all of them because <laughs> no, don't many. list all of them. It's like 50 names. No. Okay, Woody Allen, Bernardo Bertolucci, Peter Bogdanovich, Mel Brooks, Francis Ford Coppola, David Cronenberg, Brian De Palma, Jacques Demy, Rainer Werner Fassbender, Milos Forman, wow. Bob Fosse, William Friedkin. Jean-Luc Godard, Werner Herzog, Toby Hooper, James Ivory, Norman Jewison, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Philip Kaufman, Jerry Lewis, Ken Loach, Mike Nichols, Alan J. Pakula, Pasolini, Sam Peckinpah, Roman Plansky, Sidney Pollack, Bob Rafelson, Jacques Rivette, Eric Romer, George A. Romero, Ken Russell, John Schlesinger, Martin Scorsese, Andre Tarkovsky, John Waters, Lena Wertmuller, Frederick Wiseman. I mean, so many great ones. This is where coming down to just 
two is very difficult, but for me, there's a very clear number one because he's probably my favorite director of all time, and that is Martin Scorsese, who is someone we've talked about very much on this podcast already, so I don't know how much more I need to uh, discuss Scorsese, but I mean, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Raging Bull, it's hard for any director to match up with three movies that are as important and as just watchable and like impactful as those three movies. So is, is Scorsese your number one or did you go a different way? Did you go Woody I, Allen? He would be like right at close to three or four. I mean, he's way, way up there. My number one is, well, I was going to, well, let me just say that I'm teaching a class on Martin Scorsese now. And I said, and I think it's true. I think a lot of critics and historians would say that Scorsese made the best if not, you know, at least one of the very best American films of the 70s, 80s and 90s mm-hmm. with Taxi Driver, Raging Bull and Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. And we both adored Irishman. I think yeah. it's one of the best films of the previous decade. Definitely. And he's still at 77 making masterful films. <laughs> yes. And if it wasn't for this damn coronavirus, he would be making his new and well, his first Western. Killers of the Flower it, Moon. And also, is it true, I think, that it's going to it's supposedly going to star Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio, yes. the first time they've ever been in a film with Scorsese Combining together. his two great muses of his early and late career, and then reunited late career again with Tadira. Right. So my number one is going to be Woody Allen. Uh, he's one of my five favorite living directors. He's, uh, like a number of mine I've mentioned, uh, writer, director, and actor. Mm-hmm. He has made an average of a film a year since 1969. If you want to be technical, uh, it depends on what you counted as first film because he did What's Up Tiger Lily in 1966, which is where he took a actual Japanese spy film and they redubbed it and made it a comedy. And there are segments in the film before and in the middle and after where he directed segments. But even Take the Money and Run, which is like really his first legit film, that's 1969. I mean, he has so many amazing movies. Not all of them are great, but I love, I mean, you go take the money and run bananas, sleeper, love and death. And then you go into Annie Hall in Manhattan. And then you have films like stardust memories and Broadway, Danny Rose and the purple Rose of Cairo and Hannah and her sisters and radio days and crimes and misdemeanors. I mean, it's insane. It really is crazy. When you just like can look at the list of all of them and you're like, wow, a lot of these are really incredible. Yeah. And if you were going to rank like his 10 uh, weakest films, like almost all of them have come out this century. But yeah. still, he has a film like Match Point, Blue Jasmine, Midnight in Paris. I, you know, he still has the ability to make some really great films. And mm-hmm. I think that he ha- it's it's crazy the amount of talent he's worked with. Yes. And I mean, I think he's the at least the living director, if not of all time, like the most um acting nominations ever he has to be up there Mm -hmm. uh because he's had like i don't know how many have won and you know diane weist has won twice uh mira servino won for mighty aphrodite and penelope cruz won diane keaton won won. won. yeah it's just so many i mean i I, it's hard to say what's your favorite i mean annie hall probably that's a kind of standard answer but that's definitely i feel like the most influential my favorite is hannah and her sisters i think that's just incredible and the multiple characters i think it's like a step up in terms of like a story and a screenplay from anything else he had done up until that point and it's one every time i watch it it's just like it blows my mind how good it is and how many of his nearly 50 films do you think you've seen uh 
close to half probably it gets uh, more uh not you haven't seen all of his from this century no i haven't no no <laughs> like you haven't seen the curse of the jade scorpion I seen, no i haven't seen scoop irrational man yeah cafe society but I've it's crazy the cast like even the films that have like a 40 or 50 something on metacritic it's like you will meet a tall dark stranger has yeah. antonio banderas <laughs> anthony hopkins naomi watts josh brolin you know, and uh, then he does a film like Cafe Society with Jesse Eisenberg and Steve Kristen Carell. Stewart, Steve Carell, which did you know he was it was Bruce Willis and he oh, was really? not didn't remember his lines and Woody Allen just fired him. Wow. Yeah. But uh, and well, that's what I love about Woody Allen, too, is that he will make he makes films completely on his own terms. Uh-huh. He's like, I'm going to write the film and they don't cost that much money. Actors will be in them and they'll take less money and he does it completely on his own terms. And like he did a movie called September, which is actually one of his more expensive films, even though it's like basically uh, like a play. It's because he shot it the whole film twice. He so disliked the first version. He just shot the film again a second time. The first version had like Christopher Walken in it and he just recast a lot of the main actors. So, and the fact that he'll make black and white movies, like he did a movie Shadows and Fog, which has an insane cast. It has like Kathy Bates and Madonna and Lily Tomlin and Kenneth Mars and William H. Macy and Mia Farrow and Woody Allen and every, blah, 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 on and on and on. And he made this like Kafka-esque, Murnau-looking black and white film. And like it's one of his most expensive movies, but he can do it because mm-hmm. it's Woody Allen. We don't need to talk about his personal life. It's harder for him to make movies now. I mean, he's yes. still making it. It's crazy. He has a rainy day in New York, which got uh, – it's funny. In some countries, it's like the only film that's playing. And really? It's like have been released recently in the UK on streaming. Wow. And he also this year had his um, memoir, Apropos of Nothing, which I've bought. I haven't read it yet. But he's 84, still making movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he even had a film that he filmed, and he hasn't got, hasn't been released yet, but they finished uh, with Christoph Waltz, Gina Gershon, and Wallace Shawn called Rifkin's Festival that's set at a film festival. So I think I think Woody Allen is going to be my runner-up, but my like runner-up runner-up is going to be Brian De Palma. Um, just be- mostly because of The Untouchables and uh, Blowout and Dress to Kill and Mission Impossible, which are four movies that I love. But I think Woody Allen is my runner-up because I Wait, Woody, everything you oh, said. Oh, okay, you're number two. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I uh, can you, Brian De Palma turns eighty this year. That's crazy. Yes. Uh, but um, my number two, I'm going to have to Scorsese and David Cronenberg are some of my favorite directors. They're both in my top ten living directors. But I'm going to say he's no longer with us. He didn't live to be too old. Uh, Sam Peckinpah. Uh-huh. Um, I'm a huge Peckinpah fan. Uh, f- fan. The Wild Bunch is my favorite Western of all time, my third favorite film of all time. I saw, uh, I went to a retrospective of his when I was living in New York City, and I saw a number of his movies for the first time. I saw The Ballad of Cable Hogue, which is my second yeah. favorite of his, which I think is a wonderful movie. And it's not one of his like super graphic, violent films. It's this Jason Robards, right? Yeah, wonderful film. Uh, Straw Dogs, Cross of Iron I mentioned in the uh, Memorial Day episode. Um, Oh, my gosh. I mean, he was a troubled guy. You know, he Mm -hmm. had trouble making almost every movie he made. Supposedly the only film that he made that he had total creative freedom on, and it was released in theaters originally the way he wanted to, was Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, which is an amazing film. It's honestly hard to believe with how much, like, 
insane stuff is in his movies. I wonder what, like, the version he wanted would have looked like. Like, Straw Dogs is an intense movie. I mean, I I just wonder what his uncut version would have been. It probably was, you know, the censors like, yeah, you got to cut this little bit. Yeah. (laughs) And a number of his films have come out on DVD and Blu-ray uh, uncut mm-hmm. in director's cut, but like Pat Garrett versus Billy the Kid, like yeah. supposedly like he yeah, would I know that one was like butchered, right? Yeah, but he would like go to a screening with the executives, and he would like go up to the front of the screen, drunk and urinate on the screen. Like oh he God. would just do crazy things like that. So, you know, and he and I, I remember an interview with Harry Dean Stanton saying that he uh, went up to his trailer and he opened the door and Peck and Pa was standing there naked with a gun. He was shooting the television set and he was oh just shooting God. the gun off and they closed the door and Chris Christopherson went in and had to talk him down because he was just drunk and with a loaded gun. But Different great times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine like Greta Gerwig yeah. or doing that. <laughs> yeah. But I, I yeah. Um, what what would you would you say the Wild Bunch is your favorite? If yeah, is, definitely, you... definitely. Yeah. I mean, truly one of the greatest action. What is it? Do you think it's more of a western or more of an action movie? Well, it's number one a western, but it's one of the greatest. A- the action scenes in it are incredible. I feel like it in some ways like sort of invented the modern action movie with the slow mo and everything. Right, and um, it's interesting. A friend of mine posted this on Facebook a talk because they actually just showed the other night on Turner Classic Movies a number of his films. Mm-hmm was never nominated for best director. The only nomination he ever got was for the screenplay for the wild bunch. Wow. It's not too surprising considered how volatile he was, I guess. And also I think people probably saw the wild bunch as too much of like entertainment at the time. They would rather reward the arty movies, but I I know that it was like a big hit. Violent it was. I think it's because of how graphically violent it was. Yeah. I think it was like a big hit when it came out though, wasn't it? Yeah, but it was super controversial because yeah. it was – I mean I would say it was the most violent film that had ever come out that was released <laughs> by a major American studio. I mean probably. It is – it's got a high, high death count. And the fir- the opening scene is like – I can imagine a lot of people walking out from that opening well, scene. Yeah, the, the, the shootout at the end lasts right about five minutes and over yes. 100 people get killed in five minutes. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think a lot of people would have walked out by that because you've already seen a lot of violence by then. But I can imagine just like a mom and her two kids like, let's go see a Western. And then it's <laughs> just yeah, so much it's like blood. Guy, <laughs> yeah, getting his throat slit and being uh-huh. dragged behind the car. And I mean, I just, you know, I'm a pussycat in real life. I hate real violence. But in that movie, it's just so amazing. He says to the gang let's go and they march up and they get behind the machine gun and it's just like shooting the i'm uh-huh. sounding like a little kid now but god it's well, so I mean, the the walk for before the final shootout is incredibly iconic one of the like most iconic yeah. walks in the history of movies well and i will say it's also a melancholy film like yes. it's a moving film it's a film about the you know it's it really is like the end of the western yeah like a postmodern western looking at the yeah. end of it the changing of the times i mean it's set in like the 1900s isn't it yeah, set. Yeah, because they're talking about when they see the car. He's like, "I heard they have one of these that can fly in the sky." <laughs> and, and oh, and one of the great things about Peck and Paw, along with Preston Sturges, an amazing lineup of character actors yes. in his films. And he was someone Peck and Paw who would have these like grizzled, you know, tobacco, you know, spittoon, gr- you know, hairy, ugly looking people. And like, I just like they. 
movies forget to have great character actors these days. Mm-hmm. Everyone has to look like they're on the cover of GQ. <laughs> yeah. And he would have like Struther Martin and you Warren know. Oates. Uh, oh yeah, amazing. Yeah. So I Ben you know, Johnson. Yeah. If you've not seen Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia or The Ballad of Cable Ho, go see those. But absolutely if you've not seen The Wild Bunch, that's the first that's yes. like the best one to yes. start. And if you want to watch one that's a little nicer before he went really violent, Ride the High Country mm-hmm. with Joel McRae is like uh, a really wonderful Western earlier in his career. So do we uh do you want me to list the seventies now? You can. I think I've got a I've got a pretty clear top two for this one though. Oh yeah, me too. Well, I def number one is definite, but okay, seventies. Chantel Ackerman, Pedro Almodovar, yes. Dario Argento, Hal Ashby, Warren Beatty, Catherine Briott, Albert Brooks, Charles Burnett, John Carpenter, Michael Cimino, Wes Craven, Joe Dante, Jonathan Demi, Clint Eastwood. Stephen Frears, Terry Gilliam, Ron Howard, Abbas Karastami. How do you pronounce his name? Who did the color trilogy? Oh, Krzysztof Kozlowski. Okay. John Landis, <laughs> Mike Lee, George Lucas, David Lynch, Terrence Malick, Elaine May, George Miller, Heo Miyazaki, Errol Morris, Nicholas Rogue, John Sayles, Paul Schrader, Ridley Scott, Steven Spielberg, Oliver Stone, Bella Tarr, Paul Verhoeven, Peter Weir, Wim Wenders, John Woo. Uh, for me, runaway number one, Terrence Malick. Debuts with Badlands, 1973, Days of Heaven, 1978, Thin Red Line, 1998, New World, uh, Tree of Life. For me, possibly my favorite director of all time uh you i guess you could say his gpa has dropped a little bit in the last 10 years <laughs> even the... though we both like a hidden life a lot yeah and i actually um i mean i don't i don't like strongly dislike any of his movies i just some of them are like yeah, okay malik you're doing they, your thing yeah they don't live up to the the heights of his uh his earlier work well, not necessarily earlier because then red line is like middle career but, his uh, four earlier you know his yeah, exactly. five earlier films yeah yeah but, I mean, I think I know what your number one is going to be, David Lynch. Oh, without question. He is my favorite living director. I am in the cult of David Lynch. I, this is really morbid, and I shouldn't say it, but, like, if my mom, my brother, and David Lynch were, like, they, they would be, like, the top three people I would save in the world. <laughs> like, my mom and brother would be tied at number one, but, like, David Lynch would be, like, the next person on Earth that I would put in, like, a silo to, you like— You might hesitate for, like, a quarter of a second should I save David Lynch? <laughs> oh, but um, I mean, let me just say uh, Blue Velvet is, I think, probably my favorite film of the 80s. My second and third favorite film of the century so far, at least uh, of the first decade of the century, are Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire. Eraserhead is one of the great directorial debuts of all time, which I mentioned in the episode when we did those. Mm-hmm. Um Straight Story, his G-rated Disney film, is beautiful and moving. The Elephant Man, he did two biopics that are not violent and rated R. You know, he those are both lovely films. Uh, Twin Peaks, the original, is the greatest drama that's ever been on network television. The Return, I think, is the greatest work of art that's ever been on television. And I think it's better than any film that came out in the previous decade. I'm just giving all these plaudits to him. But, oh, my God, I... I love that man to death. I love his work. I love him as a person. I, yeah, I just, I, and he is such, 
an auteur. He is such a visionary, unique, like uncompromising artist, like a true artist that works in painting and television and film, whatever medium he's making a table, he's making whatever he's doing, <laughs> little cartoon. It's the silly thing on his website. I just adore the man so much. David Lynch, without question, my favorite living director and my number one of the 70s. So for my runner-up, the the personal preference and the sort of biographical experience comes very heavily into it. Because if if I was just putting on my my cinephile person who knows film history hat on, this probably wouldn't be the pick. But coming from, uh, he probably directed my favorite movie in the world when I was 10 years old. I'm going to pick Ridley Scott because he directed Gladiator. And in addition to that, you know, he also made some great films like Alien Wait, now, how and old Blade were you Runner. When you saw Gladiator? I was eight when I saw it the first time. I saw it the Your year it came parents. out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a historical movie. It teaches you about Roman history, about the Senate, about the Empire, about Marcus Aurelius and his Stoic philosophy. I, there's a lot to be gained from watching Gladiator. But uh, <laughs> like I said, it was probably my favorite movie in the world when I was 10. And he didn't only make Gladiator. He probably made the two greatest sci-fi movies ever made, Alien and Blade Runner. Um, you could say he's not slowed down recently, but the quality of his movies has probably dropped. Uh, the Alien He's like with Woody Allen. It's made. like... Yeah, it's like with Woody Allen, it's like his greatest films versus his GPA, you know. Because, I mean, like, Prometheus is a good movie, but Alien Covenant is not a good movie. We saw that together. (laughs) Yes. Probably, would you say it's the worst Alien movie? Or Alien Predator is worse? (laughs) Well, I don't count that. Well, I mean, I haven't seen it, but uh, Alien 3 is pretty abysmal. Mm -hmm. May come up later, though, with the debut. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, we saw it in this amazing, beautiful old theater in New York City with a bunch of our friends, and we're like, this just sucks. Like, <laughs> I don't, but I want to say Blade Runner, one of the greatest sci fi yes. films ever made. Uh, Thelma and Louise is wonderful. Yes. Uh, American Gangster is good. I think Martian's super entertaining. And it's amazing that he was right about 80, and all the money in the world was about to come out. And then the Kevin Spacey controversy came mm-hmm. out. And he was like, well, I'm going to, like, make this film different with Christopher Plummer in, like, two months. And he went, <laughs> yeah. boom, boom, boom. And he had it out in theaters when it was originally yes. planned to. Like, it's insane. And, and Christopher Plummer turned, like, 87, like, the Christmas. Like, both – I think it was both Ridley Scott and Christopher Plummer had a birthday right around when the film came out. And, like, one turned 80 and one turned 87 or something like That's that. That's insane. Like, crazy. Yeah, I mean, probably one of like the great technical filmmakers of all time. You could say maybe he lacks a little bit in substance, at least maybe in his more recent movies. But as far as like how movies look, you can't, you can hardly find anybody better than Ridley Scott in making like a really slick, good-looking movie. And uh, I loved in one of the Hollywood Reporter roundtables, they were asking him about The Martian, and he was like in his late seventies when he made that. And they were asking about how technically difficult that film must have been. He goes, "No, it wasn't difficult at all. You just get the people together and you do it." And it's like he's such a master that he just can be like, "Yeah, you just get the people together and you do it. And it's fun." And um, I need to see some of his. Uh, I've seen most of his big movies, but I haven't seen his first film. The Duelist. Oh, Duelist. Great historical yeah. movie. Yeah. I own the Blu-ray, and I have not seen Black Hawk Down, which I've heard is yes. like a really intense war film. Yes. Very influential, influential war movie. Another movie I probably saw earlier that I should have. 
Yeah. So my runner-up to my runner-up would be Terrence Malick. But yes. my number two, my runner-up would be Mike Lee, Ooh. the British director who I absolutely adore. And this would be kind of a weird thing to say, but if I could preserve any director and like have him be in good health and mental st- stability for like to live to be like 120 mm-hmm. and still making films every few years it would be mike lee every time he has a film i just feel so rewarded his films are so funny and beautiful and he- deeply human yes. he made his first theatrical film in 1971 bleak moments and it's interesting because he went about 17 years before doing his next theatrical film but he did all these movies for the BBC, these uh, television movies, and they're some of the funniest movies I've ever seen. I recommend Nuts in May, Grown Ups, not the Adam Sandler film, the Mike Lee film, and Abigail's Party. They are screamingly funny. And uh, I mean, I could just list every movie he's made, but especially Naked, which is one of my favorite mm-hmm. films of the 90s, Topsy Turvy, which I know you really love. Yes. <laughs> um, Vera Drake is. Uh, one of the films he was nominated for best director. Um, we both really liked Peter Lou, even though no one went to see it. Uh, <laughs> and it got kind of mixed reviews, especially for him. But I'll just say that uh, if people don't know the way he makes his films, he gets a group of actors together. And a lot of them are people he's worked with before. I always mm-hmm. tell people, it's like, it's all the people that were in Harry Potter. Like, oh, the guy who played <laughs> yeah. you know, like David Thewlis and Timothy Spall. Uh, Leslie Manville has been in a Jim Broadbent. Right. And he gets his actors together and he they workshop it together. They come up with the characters and the dialogue and the story and they workshop it for like months and then they go shoot it and they will do these long, long improvisations and they'll come up with the whole film with him. And I think his films are so they're organic and beautiful and like they go in unexpected directions. But I just, I, I, I really love his movies so much. And if I, I actually recommend the best way to start is watching some of those TV movies. Like I mentioned nuts and may and grownups because they're just so funny. But uh, if you want to watch one of his films, uh, naked is a good one, even though that's a pretty dark one, I would say that's probably my favorite of his theatrical films. There's some really good honorable mentions from the 70s series. I mean, Al, Hal Ashby, Al Motivar, John Carpenter, Jonathan Demme, Clint Eastwood. This is a strong decade. Yeah. and George just, Miller? I'm surprised he didn't get as much love from you. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, he, he's I've like only... fourth runner up. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think who else would be high in the Well, I mean, Spielberg is a master yes. filmmaker. I mean, he is not someone whose films like deeply mean a lot to me but i think he's done many many incredible films i mean this feels like oh spielberg made good movies yeah Yeah, i mean it's it's hard to tell the history of cinema without mentioning steven spielberg i mean et jurassic park he basically like invented the blockbuster with jaws well let me mention another honorable mention that is like the complete opposite of spielberg (laughs) i adore uh abbas karastami uh iranian director and i haven't seen a ton of his movies i've seen about eight of them uh but his film close-up is one of the most it just changed my mind about how movies are and what they can be about what narrative means and what the power and purpose of movies are and i got to see some of his movies uh in a theater before he passed away i saw a certified copy and like someone in love which were both in my top 10 the year they were released in the u.s 
number of his are in the Criterion Collection. I love uh, the films of Abbas Karastami. So those are some from the 70s. Any Anything else to add before I go to the 80s? No, I think roll on to the 1980s. Okay, so the first one in the 80s is three directors combined. Jim Abrams, David Zucker, Jerry Zucker. Then Olivia Assasis, Luke Besson, Catherine Bigelow, James L. Brooks, Tim Burton, James Cameron, Jane Campion, Joel and Ethan Cohen, the Darden brothers, Terrence Davies, Claire Denis, Mike Figgis, Christopher Guest, Michael Hanukkah, Amy Heckerling. I'm going to say I don't know how to pronounce some of these Chinese, these Asian directors. Um, House, he's, I don't know how to say it. It's all total. We can't do it the way they can. Yeah. Peter Jackson, Neil Jordan, Spike Lee, Barry Levinson, Richard Linklater, Michael Moore, Sam Raimi, Harold Ramis, Robert Redford, Rob Reiner, Steven Soderbergh, Todd Solons, Gus Van Sant, Lars von Trier, Edward Yang. Okay, how do you say his name? The one who directed Raise the Red Lantern. Yimu Zhang? Yeah. And Terry Zygwa. Terry Zygoff. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, more international. I think we're getting more international directors here. Yeah. Not as strong as the 60s and 70s, but still some really great filmmakers. I think we're both going to have a clear number one. Yes. I mean, a lot of people who made their debuts in the 80s, but maybe found their feet a little more in the 90s, but still made strong stuff in the 80s. I mean, the ones we're going to pick for number one definitely made strong stuff in the 80s. I'm I'm picking the Coen brothers. I'm guessing you're going to pick the Coen brothers also. Yeah. They're in my top five living directors and their their weakest films are still better than most directors films yes and i I would say they made about 16 films like a dozen of them are probably four stars or like four and a half to five stars Uh out of five like they're amazing track record i mean yeah fargo raising arizona miller's crossing a brother art though no country for old men Best Picture winner, one of the great Best Picture winners. And then this last decade maybe doesn't match up to the 90s, but still some really good stuff with True Grit and Inside Lewin Davis and Hail Caesar. And then Ballad of Buster Scruggs, uh, I don't think either of us would rank among their best movies, but it was still a pretty cool uh, sort of movie to add to their canon of movies. Uh, I don't know. I think Hail Caesar and Ballad of Buster Scruggs are sort of of a piece. They're sort of like about a lot of different stories and maybe a little bit funnier than some of their earlier stuff. Not to say their earlier stuff isn't funny, but it was sort of darkly funny. While like Hail right. Caesar is just like <laughs> it's just like funny. It's just like nothing darker than Hail Caesar. Well, I think A Serious Man is one of their masterpieces. Yes. It's one of the best films they've ever made and it's so unique and yes. it's I feel like it's one of those where like we make a big film. Well, not a, it wasn't like probably a massive budget film, but the, like they make a big critical hit, the win best picture with No Country mm-hmm. for Old Men, and then they can do like Burn After Reading with a bunch of movie stars, and then they get to make a mm-hmm. serious man. Like they they'll do a movie like True Grit, like which gets nominated for a bunch of Oscars, and then they get to do Inside Lewin Davis. Mm-hmm. It's like I think they have never made a film that they don't want to make, but yeah. They uh, are kind of like one for you, one for me. You know, it's like one for them, one for the studio. Like, but they do, even the ones they do for the studio, it's completely on their own yeah. terms. And for as much as there is like a, you can tell it's a Coen Brothers movie watching it. I mean, very different subject matters from film to film, and some I mean, super different tonally. Like a Serious Man and True Grit. It's hard to think that the same directors made both of those movies, but there is sort of like a similarity in some of the dialogue and the offbeat humor and stuff like that. 
I and mean, they made them like what, right back back to back, yeah. you know, 2009, 2010. <laughs> and it's, uh, I mean, Raising Arizona is hysterically funny and mm-hmm. so zany. And then you have a movie that's more austere, you know, like True Grit. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's a rough around the edge. It's kind of like, you know, it's a, uh, a rough around the edges Western, but it's still like a very beautiful like mm-hmm. writ- beautifully written and shot film mm-hmm. so they're and they the thing is that almost every movie they've done even though they've worked in different genres they've done comedy and drama almost every film they've done is a crime film that's true yeah you know miller's crossing raising arizona no country for old men burn after reading you know even a serious the- man involves a crime <laughs> with the bribery right. <laughs> but i would say their weakest film is the lady killers yeah um, but still, I I like that um, Josh Olson on the movies that made me podcast said that with the Coen brothers, the first time he sees their, one of their films, if he doesn't love it, he knows he's wrong because <laughs> yeah. like he's there. The Coen brothers are always like a step ahead of us because they're so smart. That is a good film. way to put it. Right. So, so what would your number two be? I, this is this is a tough one, but I think I'm going with Richard Linklater for my number two. Sort of similar general filmography to the Coen Brothers in that you can sort of he he is an auteur, but he's made a lot of different kinds of movies also from like big budget movies. Well, it's sort of big budget. Like me and Orson Welles is very much like a studio movie, and then like something like Boyhood, which is completely sort of indie and very much a movie that other people wouldn't have even thought to make. Um, but I, and also like one for you, one for me. Yes, definitely. Type. Yeah, like I would say, School of Rock is like, and that would be like one of his more mainstream movies. Yeah, but was like a lot of kids my age like really liked School of Rock growing up, and was like a movie that uh, taught a lot of kids about classic rock and stuff like that. So, actually, had like a big impact on a a generation of uh, consumers of music and movies. Yeah, I think that. uh, Well, this is one where it's a technicality. People think that, oh, Slacker is his first film that came out in the 90s, but he did this feature film called It's Impossible to Learn to Plow by Reading Books, oh, which, which is a great on title. The, yeah, it's on the Criterion uh, DVD and Blu-ray of Slacker, but mm-hmm. we both love the Before trilogy. Yes. Uh, I think they are. it's one of the greatest film trilogies. Yes. Uh, I, I think one of his underrated films, one of his absolute gems is Bernie, mm-hmm. uh, a film he did with Jack Black uh, after School of Rock. I think that is one of the funniest films mm-hmm. in recent years. Yeah, very eclectic director, but such a – one of the great like humanist American yes. directors of the last you know 30-plus years. Oh, definitely. And uh, one of the ones that was underseen by most people but uh, not underseen – in my household everybody wants some i think is one of the funnier movies of the last 10 years and uh that is a film that i missed in theaters but i did watch at home and uh well i'm gonna go to my number two which is like the opposite of a humanist director (laughs) um is uh lars von trier uh and I, it, it's kind of like a tie almost. It's like neck and neck with Michael Hanukkah. So it's like the super bleak, depressing, <laughs> fucked up European filmmakers. Uh, but I have to give the edge to Lars von Trier, who, you know, he's a messed up guy. But I, that's the thing. It's hard to tell how much is like an sincere. act. Yeah, I, it's like my I love the film critic Mark Kermode. And he said that you need to take everything that said about Lars von Trier with a grain of salt, mm-hmm. especially what von Trier says himself. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 
I'm not saying that he doesn't suffer from depression or that he has phobias or, you know, but, you know, when he says the outrageous thing about Hitler at the Cannes Film Festival, you know, he's just making a, a, mm -hmm. a rude joke and he doesn't actually have an affinity for Hitler. Um, supposedly, he's never flown uh, to he's never been to America. Did you know that he's never been to the United States? That's insane to think of like a movie director never being to America. Yeah, in making a film Dogville, which is about America uh -huh. in the early and pretty much an entirely American, well, maybe Australians and British people in it, but yeah, it's in yeah. English. Yeah, it has Lauren Bacall and uh -huh. uh, James Conn in it. Yeah, but uh, oh, I mean, I just love Lars von Trier. He's <laughs> he's just so fucked up, and I love so many of his movies. I my favorite of his is his musical. Dancer in the Dark starring Bjork, which just I tell people that that film kicks your heart in the balls. I mean, it just is so heartbreaking and wrenching. Uh, Dogville is brilliant. Uh, Melancholia. I truly think Antichrist is a terrific film. Uh, his miniseries, The Kingdom, is mm. like people have described it as like Twin Peaks meets ER. It's like this <laughs> comedy drama, science fiction, fantasy, medical drama. Uh, oh, Europa, Breaking the Waves, yes. two of his earlier films. I mean, I just I mean, you can cri criticize the content of some of his movies and the messages of them and they can disturb you and enrage you. But it's hard to deny that he is a masterful filmmaker. His mm -hmm. films are beautiful and they're challenging. And he and even if they people like to call him a misogynist or that his films are sexist, he gets some of the most incredible performances out of actresses. Emily Watson in Breaking the Waves, Bjork in Dancer in the Dark, mm -hmm. Charlotte Gainsbourg in uh, Antichrist, Kirsten Dunst in Melancholia. Nicole Kidman, Dogville. Oh, some great female performances. So I completely defend Lars von Trier as being one of our greatest living directors, and he would be my number two. He had his feature debut, The Element of Crime, mm -hmm. in the 80s. So how many of his films have you actually seen? I think three. I've seen uh, Melancholia, Nymphomaniac, and Europa, which Europa is my favorite of those three. I think that's just like a masterpiece. You need to watch Dancer in the Dark. Yeah. You need to – oh, it, it's going to just kill you. It's so sad. It's so sad. <laughs> That's what I've heard. It's... I, like, don't want to watch it. <laughs> yeah. That's one where, like, I, I hear stuff about some movies and, uh, you know, for an academic, spoilers don't exist. So I, like, read the plot on Wikipedia and I'm like, that is very sad. I don't know if I want to experience it. He basically that. creates this beautiful character uh, that Bjork plays and he spends two hours and 20 minutes destroying her. <laughs> And uh, I mean, it's not in the same way that like Antichrist mm -hmm. and Nymphomaniac are like hardcore and like difficult to watch. Like, yeah, it's 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 emotionally difficult to watch. Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, his films are certainly not for everyone. But I admire so much his his balls. He mm -hmm. just how un unapologetic he is. And uh, I'll just say as uh, uh, an honorable mention, I also feel very similarly to Michael Haneke. Mm -hmm. I did a more the white ribbon um funny code games unknown. yeah both versions did the shot by shot remake he's along with like alfred hitchcock and cecil v demille remaking <laughs> his own movie so exclusive uh, club <laughs> yeah so you want to uh call out real quick like in the 80s anyone else uh yeah i mean steven soderbergh is Wong kar wai one of my favorite international filmmakers um 
Christopher Guest, one of the great mockumentary filmmakers of all time. James L. Brooks hasn't made a ton of movies, but Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News are two of my favorite movies from that decade. Uh, Jane Campion, The Piano, I think is an incredible, incredible movie. One of the most moving movies I've ever seen. It like emotionally devastated me the first time I saw it. Um, Peter Jackson, get a nice honorable mention. The director of The Lord of the Rigs. You uh, mentioned like half of these people. Okay, well, let no, me just mention. Spike Lee is the last one. Okay, uh, yeah, I was going to say Spike Lee uh, is – I think he's an underrated director in a way because yes. he is kind of hit or miss. He's not made every film – and not every film he's made is amazing, but he really is. Like I think a lot of people focus on the the messages of his films yes. and you know the fact that he's like one of the only black filmmakers, yes. especially at the time when he came yes. up. But he really is a terrific filmmaker. Um, I also want to point out Todd Solon's. Mm-hmm. He makes really messed up comedies, and I love him to death. He makes the just the, the I mean the the two to start with. If you haven't seen any of his movies, Welcome to the Dollhouse and Happiness, two of the best best comedies of the '90s. But his first one called, and I haven't. It's the only one of his I haven't seen. It's not available on DVD. Uh, it's not streaming anywhere. It has a great title: Fear, Anxiety, and Depression. Hmm. Yeah. So the '90s is three a pretty, decades uh, to go. Yeah, the 90s is a really stacked decade, too. A lot of the greatest directors working today had their start in the 90s. So here are a few of them. Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, both with their film, first film coming out in 96. Darren Aronofsky, Noah Baumbach, Brad Bird, Danny Boyle, Nuri Bilge-Silen, Sofia Coppola, Alfonso Cuaron, Julie Dash, Guillermo del Toro, Bruno Dumont, David Fincher, Mel Gibson, Spike Jones, Mike Judge, Harmony Corinne, Ang Lee, Chang Dong Lee, Baz Luhrmann, Sam Mendez, Bennett Miller, Anthony Minghella, Christopher Nolan, Jafar Pahani, Chen Wook Park, Alexander Payne, Kimberly Pierce, Lynn Ramsey, Nicholas Winding Refn, David O. Russell, Kelly Rydark, M. Night Shyamalan, John Singleton, <laughs> Whit Stillman, Quentin Tarantino, Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Uh, yeah, uh, Lana and Lily Wachowski, Edgar Wright. That's uh, a few of them. <laughs> For me, th- oh man, this is uh, this is one where I'm like, oh, I know, and then I keep looking. I'm like, oh shit, that guy was also from this, but. Number one for me is David Fincher. I think he's like a modern day Stanley Kubrick. And Social Network I consider to be the second best movie of the past decade after Tree of Life. And then Zodiac, Seven, Fight Club, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl. Some of the best thrillers of the last 25 years. Um, Yeah, David Fincher number one for me. One of the great visual filmmakers of all time. Uh, my favorite of his, I I have not seen the game and Panic Room, mm. but uh, Zodiac I think is his masterpiece yes. of the films I've seen. I also think um, the Social Network is one of the best written films, and it's it's one of the great examples of a really really well written film, mm-hmm. really really well directed. Yes, you know one it, of the great not... collaborations of all time. Right, and amazing performances. Um, yeah, I have. He didn't direct all of it, but I've been watching. I just finished the second season of Mindhunter, mm-hmm. uh, which it's amazing. He hasn't done a film since Gone Girl. Yeah. Um, that was t- 2014, I think, right? Yeah. Then he just shifted to House of Cards and Mindhunter. And then luckily we're going to get Mank on Netflix. So hopefully the theater is not being open. Doesn't keep us from seeing a David Fincher movie this year. Yeah. His black and white film about the making of Citizen King starring Gary Oldman. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my number one 
He this is my favorite director under fifty, not for long because he turns fifty this month. Ooh. Is Paul Thomas Anderson, mm-hmm. who is I I don't know where he gets it. Like it's funny, Mark Maron had talked when he had him on his podcast. He sees movies like The Master and There Will Be Blood, and he's like he's going to be this dark brooding genius, and it's like this dopey kid from yeah. the valley. Like yeah. he's just you know he's just like this unassuming funny guy who likes Adam Sandler movies, and he's married to a Saturday Night Live cast member, mm-hmm. and he's you know he's just brilliant. I mean, and it's amazing that he made you know, Heart Eight and Boogie Nights and Magnolia, like all, you know, younger than me mm-hmm. now, I think, you know, he made him in this like mid to late twenties. And one of the great writer directors. And it's so like, where does he decide, like, how does he go, you know, he does these like Altman-esque sprawling films, Boogie Nights and Magnolia. And then he does a really quirky romantic comedy drama starring Adam Sandler. And then he does this like American epic (laughs) masterpiece, There Will Be Blood. Then he makes a film that's like about the creation of Scientology, basically. And then he makes an adaptation of a uh, Thomas Pynchon novel. Uh And then he makes this British period piece film about (laughs) About a a guy who makes dresses. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, where does he just like, but there, I mean, he hasn't made a bad film. No, he hasn't. And I think that There Will Be Blood is clearly one of the great films of this century so far. And, Mm It's just he's kind of an enigma of like where his films come from. It's just, but that's just what a great filmmaker can be. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's I don't know. It's I his films they're hard to grasp in one sitting. They they kind of take multiple viewings, but they're also super entertaining. Like they're big screen. Like he's one of the he's one of the directors that loves film. He loves shooting on yes. film, and he wants big screen experience. And I hope he keeps making films for many, many more decades. It's, I'm just fascinated to see what he's going to keep doing. Oh, yeah. He's he's one of the directors 60s. that's like the next movie he's coming out with. Like, I have to see it. Like, almost more so than like a Tarantino or anybody else, really. Like, it's, after There Will Be Blood, it was like anything he does, I'm going to go see it like the first weekend it's out. Oh, absolutely. And uh, like I said, he's... Not going to be uh, under fifty for long, but he is for me. Uh, for me, without question, the best director under fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, what would your two number two be? Tarantino. Uh, my, I mean, I mean, this is where it becomes really, really tough. It's I mean, also the GPA thing. It's like yeah. you love, love, love some of his movies, but not all of them you love. Well, I think I, I keep going for more like personal with my runner-up picks because this is another sort of like around ten years old where I saw one of his movies and it had a big impact on me. I'm going with. Wes Anderson in the movie I was referring to that had a very big impact was Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, I guess I saw that when I was like 9 or 10 and just absolutely loved it. It was like totally different from anything I'd ever seen. And I mean, people can say like all of his movies look the same. All of them have like the same jokes and are sort of just about like twee intellectual look how much I know, look at these references I'm putting out. But I don't know. That is right up my alley. And I mean, his movies may be, like, very knowing and sort of, like, in-jokes, but, like, I think they're really entertaining. I think the Grand Budapest Hotel works really well as just following this character and his hijinks and everything. And, and I mean, it's actually a pretty touching story with him and uh, the, the lobby boy. And then something like uh, Moonrise Don't Kingdom. Don't you touch my lobby boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean... I think I think people give him a hard time, but for me, Wes Anderson, Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums were, like, two of, like, the sort of 90s to early 2000s independent movies that I got into before 
you know, some other directors before Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, I'd probably seen, like, I guess, like, three Wes Anderson movies before I ever saw a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. So it's just, uh, this isn't to say Wes Anderson is a better director. This is where the personal preference to who's better comes into. But just for my favorite, I think I have to pick Wes Anderson over Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, he wouldn't be way, way at the top of the list, but I really like all of his films. I actually, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox is my favorite. Yes. I'm a big Roald Dahl fan, and that's just such a wonderful combination of his sensibilities with Roald Dahl's. <laughs> it's really, Grand really Bitter. funny. Oh, yeah, and uh, it's one of the few films that has like a insane voice cast, but oh, yeah. it works. Like The fact that it's Meryl Streep and George Clooney and Willem Dafoe and Bill Murray playing the voices of rats and badgers no it doesn't distract you because they're actually really really perfectly cast yeah um so it's interesting that neither of us are picking tarantino on uh, our top two even though he's way close to the list but my number two is to get a little bit of a variety and i'm not just picking her because of this but i'm gonna pick kelly rydoke as my runner-up i have seen all of her films and she's another one has not made a bad film Mm. and her films it's similar in a way to like to mike lee like every time she has a film come out every few years it's like a gift to cinema it's just so unique and personal and small and they're just these amazing little their films are often adapted from stories um by a writer named jonathan raymond and she writes the screenplays with uh with him but certain women Wendy and Lucy, Meek's Cutoff. And maybe the best film she's made is her most recent one, First Cow, which I saw at the New York Film Festival last mm-hmm. year with her in person. And it got released right before the quarantine hit. And that movie is just so funny and moving and just perfectly observed. She's just, she's one of those filmmakers along with um, Abbas Karastami. And I don't know who else I'd put in the list, but it's just like you're two minutes into the movie and you just relax because you know you're in the hands of a master filmmaker. Like you just like, oh, I'm going to watch a great film now because they're just completely in command of every aspect of the film. Um, Have you actually seen any of her movies? I have not. First Cow was getting very excited about seeing until (laughs) it became impossible to see movies. Well, you should just go back and watch her films. Uh, It's interesting. She's uh, one that made a film, River of Grass, 1994 and then went almost a whole decade before her second film Hmm. um but i think that wendy and lucy yeah it's 80 minutes long beautiful heartbreaking movie a number of hers uh well a few of her films are in the criterion collection like certain women uh but oh my gosh just i i i I she's a special filmmaker i i think she for my money she's the best living female director Mm. the best female uh at least working today Mm -hmm. uh she's uh one of the and her movies don't get seen very much never had an oscar nomination not just her but any of her movies never been nominated for an oscar they're too small like people don't see them i don't think but Mm -hmm. it's 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 sad they don't but if if people have not seen kelly rydark's films absolutely go out and i especially recommend wendy and lucy and her most recent film first cow Mm -hmm. sexist you don't have any women ever in your list (laughs) no i don't (laughs) oh i mean Catherine bigelow deserves a shout out for the 1980s the director of point break two of the best films of this uh century so far hurt locker and zero dark oh it's for sure yeah so uh do we want to just say we 
absolutely have Tarantino. You would have Tarantino yes. like right there close to the list. Right? I, this is like it's got a lot of really good filmmakers. Yeah, it'd probably be like Paul Thomas Anderson and Tarantino together, and then Danny Boyle. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, um, I love I, Train Spotting. Yeah, I uh, one that would would also be close to the top. I think Bennett Miller, even though he's only done four films, a documentary and three narrative films. I think he is one of he's one of the directors of just amazing performances. Mm-hmm. I mean, all three of his narrative films were nominated for best actor. He had his three films that all are one word titles, Capote, Moneyball, Foxcatcher, all three nominated for best actor. Mm-hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman won. I think Foxcatcher is kind of a masterpiece and was mm-hmm. underrated. It got it's actually one of the few films that was nominated for best director but not for best picture even mm-hmm. when the category expanded to between 5 and 10 best picture nominees. Also, I just want to mention another really good one that also was nominated for best director but not best picture when the blah, 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 is Alexander <laughs> Payne with Nebraska. Yeah. I think he's one of the he's like the Hal Ashby of our generation. No, he truly is. Like comedy dramas you have about Schmidt, Election, The Descendants. Descendants. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And also, I just want to shout out, I love Darren Aronofsky. Mm-hmm. He's very unique. Uh, but anyway, so let's go to the 2000s. J.J. Abrams, Judd Apatow, Anna Biller, John Jun Ho Bong. I should know his name because he just won Best Director. <laughs> Jun Ho Bong, right? You can. Well, I, those Korean names, you can either yeah, you can either do the last name first or second. I think yeah. Bong is the last name, so yeah. it's Bong Juno. Yeah, <laughs> Damien Chazelle, George Clooney, Stephen Daltrey, Lee Daniels, Ava DuVernay, Greta Gerwig, Jonathan Glazer, Armando Iannucci, Alejandro G. Inaratu, Barry Jenkins, Charlie Kaufman, Yorgos Lanthimos, Kenneth Lonergan, David Lowery, Adam McKay, Steve McQueen, Jeff Nichols, Jason Reitman. Benny and Josh Safdie, a pitch of Hong worth a set and Andre, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, starts with a Z, directed The Return and Loveless and Leviathan. How would you pronounce that name? Zvigintsev. Yeah. Zvigintsev. So, so let's just put some uh, technicality things. So people think, well, Greta Gerwig, her first film was Lady Bird. Technically, she directed a film with Joe Swanberg called Nights and Weekends. Well, shouldn't that count as Greta Gerwig and Joe Swanberg, just as Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger counted as one? Yeah, but it's still that, you know, but I, I counted know. both. No, but I counted both of them under the both of them, and then I put him by himself. So, like, she, she, like she directed the film, as did Joe Swanberg. So it counts... You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but I, we did Powell and Pressburger separately from Michael Powell. So I, I know, think, but I put Michael pa- this Powell should count. Too. I know, but this should count because Lady Bird was the first one she directed by herself, right? Yeah, but I'm – yeah, but I put – I put – no, but but it, but it counts because she directed it. It's like if two of them directed it, if it was the other way – I would count it. You don't think it is a separate entity that Greta Gerwig is separate from Greta Gerwig and Joe Swanberg? But she direct. Oh, okay. Well, we can. That, <laughs> that can be a technicality. You know what I'm saying is that like if it's the one director did it by himself, and then there's the two of them. Mm-hmm. The first one, it's like he did it, and then the second one. You know what I'm know. saying? I don't know. This is the first. This is the first controversy we've had. I okay. Think who would be your picks for the 2000s? Uh, yeah. My number one is Steve McQueen. Uh, has not made a ton of movies, but, I mean, Hunger, Shame, 12 Years a Slave, 
Widows is not as good as those other three, but those three were like some of the strongest first three movies any director could possibly have made. And then, you know, ultimately capping off that run with 12 Years a Slave winning Best Picture. Um, it was just announced that he has not one, but two feature films at the Cannes Film Festival, even though, like, what does that mean? That there's not a Cannes <laughs> Film Festival anymore. And that's very exciting news. I mean, because he took a little a little while between movies for some time, but this is going to be kind of a short gap between Widows and uh, these next ones. But just one of the great directors of the human experience in all sort of different varieties, usually looking to the depths of how much humans can suffer, whether that suffering is, you know, brought on themselves or brought upon them by others, like uh, 12 Years a Slave, which is like the ultimate sort of like tragedy being brought on someone, but then, you know, shame. He, the pain is caused by his own person, but one of the great sort of uh, examiners of the human psyche and modern human beings, I think Steve McQueen is one of our great living directors, and uh, he's one where every movie he comes out with, I'm going to see it as soon as I possibly can. Yeah, I I think Hunger is my favorite of his. I think that's such a strong, uncompromising film, and he's certainly one of the most original voices making films these days mm-hmm. the fact that he's black but british you know it's inter, inter, interesting perspective on mm-hmm. the world and in the world of cinema um my number one without question because it's my favorite film of that of the 2000s if not the whole century so far is charlie kaufman because mm-hmm. mainly because of synecdoche new york only now, two movies right yeah, he has his third one hopefully going to come out through Netflix this year. I'm only I'm thinking of ending things. Mm-hmm. But Synecdoche in New York is just a film that means so much to me. I talked about it on the debut mm-hmm. episode where we talked about directorial debuts. So for that, and... his like the one movie Synecdoche in New York, you like that so much that it counts over all the great Bong Joon-ho movies cuz he's made like, you know, 5, 6, 7 really good movies. Just yeah, the highs of um uh, what's sorry charlie kaufman or just that high that it doesn't matter that he's only made two movies right absolutely he's in my top 10 favorite living directors pretty much because of synecdoche new york now i really like anomalisa also which is the second film he directed with duke johnson mm-hmm. and he's written and it's kind of cheating a little bit in my head because i think of being john malkovich uh-huh. an adaptation internal sunshine and the spotless mind which he definitely you know, was the main voice yes. behind as the writer, but they have great directors too. But Synecdoche in New York, he wrote it by himself. He directed it. It's just an incredible film. I, I talked about it in the previous episode. I don't need to just repeat it, but that film means a lot to me. And it's a film that it's interesting. People tend to not really like it or they think it's a masterpiece mm-hmm. and they think it's one of the greatest films in recent years. And I think that it will go down um, you know, years and years from now, it's going to just rise in est- in people's estimation. It was mm-hmm. Roger Ebert's favorite film of that decade. It's my favorite film of that decade for sure. And like I said, possibly of the whole century so far. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make another <laughs> personal one for my runner up. Uh, I think there are stronger candidates, but I'm going to go with Adam McKay. Because he is the director of Anchorman, The Legend of Rob Burgundy, <laughs> which might have been my favorite movie when I was 12. And uh, more than that, some of the best comedies, I think, of this century with uh, Step Brothers and the other guys and Talented Nights, which I think are just 
incredibly funny movies. And then he recently stepped into a little bit more serious territory. And I think he really held himself well, and I'm interested to see what he does in the future. He did The Big Short and then Vice. I think The Big Short was probably better than Vice, but I think he has a very promising future. And uh, I will always know him as the director of Anchorman, but he is more than that by this point. He is sort of... He's Adam McKay, I guess, to most people, and he's sort of made his name in filmmaking, aside from Will Ferrell, because at the beginning, he was very much, like, teamed up with Will Ferrell, and, I mean, Anchorman, Tally Knight, Step Brothers, other guys, all with Will Ferrell, Anchorman, too, with Will Ferrell, but, uh, I don't know, I think, I think he's a really gifted director, and I think that, uh, he's probably, along with Judd Apatow, the best comedy director of this century. Well, it's interesting that who would have thought when Step Brothers came out within the next 10 years, he would be nominated for Best Director. Twice. I know, it's insane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I I had really mixed feelings about Vice, uh-huh. but Anchorman to me is one of the funniest films of the century yes. so far. I was also, I, I just adored, I was like the perfect age where I saw like oh, all yeah. of the Judd Apatow and Will Ferrell movies in the mid 2000s and through the... You know, the rest of the decade. A, a golden the age of PG-13 and R-rated comedies. Oh, yeah. Certainly R-rated. Yes. I mean, one of, I mean, Judd Apatow, you know, starting his directorial debut with 2005's The 40-Year-Old Virgin. But, yeah, um, Adam McKay, it'll be really interesting to see what his career will be like in the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. Like, where he'll go. Will he go back and do He's done really some silly TV stuff? with Succession. Yeah. And he's going to, you know, he was one of the screenwriters on Ant-Man. You know, will he do like a big budget movie, like a like a franchise movie? It'll just be interesting. Supposedly he wants to do a film with Jennifer Lawrence oh. uh, that's in the works. But yeah, she hasn't been in a movie in a while. No, um, she hasn't. She's... And I don't know. This is a guy I've listened to his interviews and is much more thoughtful and probably smarter than you might think the director of Step Brothers would be. Um, so yeah, I I don't know. I'm very excited to see what he ha- does in the future. He has a very inter- interesting perspective on the American experience, and uh, I th- I think he's it's sort of become like one of the the better political directors uh, of recent years, I guess. Well, I have real problems with Vice, mm-hmm. but the things I like about it, I think, are kind of brilliant. Yeah, like the best parts of Vice are really intelligent and uh, provocative. Um, so my number two, <clears throat> let me clear my throat, is Epichapong with Asethakul, who is a gay Thai director who makes, I've said before that if Tim Burton and David Lynch are like on their own island making very unique films, then um, people call Epichapong with Asethakul Joe. Joe is like in another solar system he's on pluto yeah he his movies are utterly like there's nobody else making films like his they're very ethereal most of them are set out in nature in rural parts of thailand Mm -hmm. and i just adore his movies he's made films such as tropical malady uncle boon me Mm -hmm. who can recall his past lives which won the palm door at the Cannes film festival in 2010 who was the head of the jury that year Tim tim burton yeah yeah. A truly insane movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I just, he's so visionary, and I can't wait. You know, who knows when films are going to come out, but he has a film starring Tilda Swinton, the first film outside of his home country. I just, is Uncle Boomy the only one you've seen? Uh-huh. Yeah, 
What What did you think of that movie? <laughs> it was just like, I mean, it's truly one you had no idea where it was going to go next. You were just like, oh, this is happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> like when the I, monkey man emerges, you're just like, this is just a step further from anything I've seen. <laughs> yeah. I saw that movie with my mom in the theater and afterwards she was just like shook her head and like, I, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> it's just a little bit baffling. The but... talking fish. There's just so much yeah. craziness to it. Yeah, well, like this princess gets into the water and the fish like flaps up between her legs uh-huh. and like seemingly has sex with her and it's like what am I seeing? Yeah, but but yeah, like a really I... really uh, a movie you cannot take your eyes off. You're just like this is truly different than anything I've ever seen, and I don't want to look away. Right. So um, I recommend his film Tropical Malady. If if you're not seeing any of his movies, that's a good one to start with. But also just Uncle Boon Me because that's mm. I mean, none of his movies at all are accessible. Like mm. he makes hardcore, not like because they're super sexual or violent, but he just makes hardcore art house like mm. this is uncompromising. Like, got, oh, yeah. Like you just got it. No, nobody's you know if it's like from stepbrothers to uncle boon me it's like the opposite ends of the <laughs> cinematic true. spectrum yeah but uh i i'm a huge fan of his and i he's another one you know when we're getting into these more recent directors i just i, I can't wait to see like in the next just 10 years what what films are if what films ever get made again we'll see when movies start getting made yeah. again but i can't wait to see the one with them. Uh, what would your number two be? Oh, my number two was uh, was Adam McKay. Steve McQueen's. My number one was Steve McQueen. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. Any so other? Now I, I just want to mention. Well, now, let me let me mention one more uh, because he's only made three films. First came out in two thousand is Jonathan Glazer. Mm-hmm. I think he has made three uh, incredible films, especially Under the Skin, uh, and he uh, supposedly has a Holocaust film coming out sometime. Uh, but he's one that makes films, uh, he, he, uh, you know, very spread out. Also, I think that he, along with David Fincher, is one of the directors that actually deserves to be mentioned in the same sentence as Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, so, I mean, Barry Jenkins, I think, deserves a mention. Uh, if Beale Cooper? Street could talk. No, 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 no. Oh, Just okay, from yeah, this okay. this decade. Not no, not as the new Kubrick. He has some time <laughs> to, to, I think, maybe the new Wong Kar Wai. I think is what he aspires to. But yeah. uh, if Bill Streak of Talk was my favorite movie from that year, I think, what was that, 2018, 2017? Yeah. Uh, and then also Moonlight, the best picture winner, one of the best movies of the century. Um, and then Damien Chazelle, I know you're a big Whiplash fan. Does Absolutely. He, does he earn an honorable mention for Whiplash? Whiplash is one of the most incredible film experiences I've had in a theater. And I think um, – First Man is a very well-made film. I really don't like La La Land. I've never seen his first film, the one that makes him technically in the 2000s. Yeah, I haven't either, actually. Black and White Musical. La La Land was not his first musical. Mm -hmm. But uh, he's doing a a Hollywood film with Brad Pitt and Emma Stone next, isn't he? which I'm very excited about. But you know what's weird is that shows come on. He has a jazz show on Netflix. no No one's talking about it. Well, I don't, I don't know if he has as much ended up having as much creative control as it seemed like he would at the beginning. I think he ended up just like maybe directing a couple episodes. But when it was announced, it was like Damien Chazelle creates the show. But I don't know if he actually was as involved as it. Yeah, but I, I haven't seen it. Um, yeah, it's, it's that's what the thing about Netflix is. Sometimes they just sort of like are released, and if people don't make a big deal out of it in the first week, it kind of just like people forget about it. Yeah. 
Well, the 2010s are, you know, because Spare. it's so recent, there's yeah. not too many directors, but it's really uh, one big thing is the horror directors. Mm-hmm. So uh, the few directors I listed, Ari Aster, Robert Eggers, Eliza Hittman, Jennifer Kent, Jordan Peele, Dee Rees, and Terry Edward Schultz. Almost all of them have directed at least one horror film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so i just going to pick uh, my number one. Uh, oh, I have two I picked, but it's it's hard to say because there's so few I have listed. There mm-hmm. could be other ones that I'm forgetting, but Robert Eggers is what I'm picking as the number one because yeah. I think The Witch is one of the best horror films of like the last 25 years. Yeah. And I, I really like The Lighthouse also. I'm, I'm also going to go with Robert Eggers. <laughs> Because, I mean, I, Jordan Peele's Get Out, I think, is better than Us. The Witch or, um, oh. uh, what's it called? The one that Bob came out. Duke. The Lighthouse. Yeah. But I think combined, The Witch and The Lighthouse are better than Us and Get Out because I really didn't like Us. So that's the reason Robert Eggers is number one for me because I think The Witch and uh, The Lighthouse combined are stronger two movies than Get Out and Us. Although I think Get Out is uh, the best out of any of those two filmmakers movies. So Jordan Peele would be my number two. Robert Eggers would be my number one. My number two, have you ever seen any films by Terry Edward Schultz? He did Cresha, It Comes at Night, and Waves. Mm-mm. Yeah. Was uh, Waves the pretty controversial one that came out last year? I don't know. Was it controversial? It That's the one really with like re- the, the guy who accidentally kills his girlfriend. Is that right? Right. Yeah. I didn't really hear any controversy. I just heard man- mainly good reviews. I heard reviews. some people not liking... Uh, I don't know if it was from within the black community or from people talking about it, but just, I don't know. I read some criticism of it. I didn't see the movie myself, so I can't address it, but maybe well, I'm wrong. Well, I, I could understand how some people might feel that way, but I'll just say his first film, Cresha, is a remarkable film. It's super low budget. He filmed it basically in one house, in his family's house, with his real family members, starring his real aunt, Cresha, mm-hmm. and it's just so small but it is an incredibly powerful film it's like the you know family member from hell comes to visit over thanksgiving and it just gets you know worse and worse and worse and it's i mean it's remarkable how powerful that film is considering how small it's like it's one of those movies that you know people can just like grab a camera make a movie in their house and it's Mm -hmm. like that but Oh my God! This but movie. really good. <laughs> yeah, it was John Waters' favorite film of the year. It was in my top ten of the year. Yeah, Krisha uh, is one of like the great directorial debuts in recent years, and I also liked his horror film. And Waves, I thought, was incredibly. I mean, it is. It's a very showy, flashy film. Like the camera work is like very Malick-like, and he actually worked on some of Malick's films um, in behind the scenes. Really? But uh, yeah, he. Um, yeah, it's what a great Krisha. person to learn from. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> One that I, that wasn't on yours that will get an honorable mention from me is Chad Stahelski, the director of the John Wick trilogy. Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, he um, debuted with John Wick in 2014. Right. I feel like there's probably other ones that it's like they've only made one or two films. Yeah, and I haven't I seen mean, either of them. There's a lot who have just made one movie from this sort of era, like Bo Burnham with Eighth Grade. I really, really like Eighth Grade. Um some other ones mid 90s jonah hill i like that movie a lot uh bradley cooper yeah bradley cooper star is born but yeah it's hard to judge someone on just one movie right i'm trying to think if there's anything else that's like a really 
fresh young director. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I can't wait to see what, like they just announced today, Ari Aster says he's going to make a four hour nightmare mm-hmm. comedy. And that, uh, Robert Eggers you know, Robert... has the Viking horror movie coming out yeah. or yeah, that was about near to... production when this whole yeah. coronavirus broke out. It was like about just, to start yeah. filming, right? Yeah. 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 And, uh, D Reese is going to make, um, she did Pariah and Mudbound. She was, she's going to make a horror film for Blumhouse, a lesbian, really? like wow. in the woods movie or something. Oh, another one to mention David B show animal kingdom came out in 2010 uh he also did the king which came out last year and then the rover with robert pattinson which came out in the middle of the decade probably animal kingdom is probably still the strongest movie have you is that his first feature Uh uh-huh okay we always have to be careful because like edgar wright oh Shaun of the dead's his first film no actually it's a film he made (laughs) super young and it caught a fistful of fingers Uh but uh yeah i i feel bad i love the Duke, but I didn't actually get around to seeing her second film, The Nightingale, yeah. which I've heard is like super hard to watch. It's like multiple... I think it's on Hulu now. If you want to yeah. get through it, <laughs> well, it's like multiple horrific rapes yeah. and super graphic and violent. But you know, I like movies sort like of that, a dar- so it's like a dark western start set in Australia, right? It's sort of about the the dark colonial past of the settlement of Australia. It sounds really good, right? Well, w- while we're wrapping up, would you like to venture like? like we were saying the films are so up in the air like when are films going to start shooting again mm-hmm. of all the living directors like do you want to fantasize like what would you love to see some of these like master older directors and some of these young up-and-coming directors and some of the people that are like in the Richard Linklater David Fincher mm-hmm. the Andersons like the that era what are some of the things you would love to see them do in the next 10 15 years well, I don't know. It's I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, I, fantasize. I mean, fantasize. I like one for me. I is would David like Lynch makes another movie. I mean, that's definitely one. Um, yeah. I would love for Quentin Tarantino to make a Fast and the Furious movie. No, you don't. I would. I would be great. It would be fantastic. No, no, because you, well, <laughs> well, it's it's like fantasy versus reality because like he says he's only gonna make one more movie and there's no way. Well, he okay, would. yeah, yeah, yeah. If 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 he only gets to make one more movie. I would like him to make another Western. I'll say that much. But if he gets to make more than one, I would like to see him write a Fast and Furious movie because I would love to see Vin Diesel with the Tarantino dialogue. That would just be too much fun. That would just be too much fun. Um, I don't know. I'd like to see Adam McKay do more presidential biopics. I think like a Kennedy movie or something like that would be cool. Steve McQueen going back to the historical. I think 12 Years a Slave is one of the great like historical movies, so I'd like to see him I'd make more stories set in America's past, maybe like Reconstruction or something like that could be interesting, or maybe even earlier than that. But uh, um, I'd like to see Terrence Malick do an even more narrative, yeah. like well-written film. Like not that I, you know, we both really liked A Hidden Life, but like I would love to see him do like go back and do like a Badlands. Uh, days of heaven i mean he's for a long time on his imdb page says he's wanted to make a jerry lee lewis biopic yeah i would love to see that i'd like to see him direct a movie someone else has written that would be cool i think i would because so many of his stuff that he's written you imagine his movies he doesn't even have like a script it's just like let's shoot this today but i mean he is the credited writer on them but uh i'd like to see him do one someone else has written i'd also like to see Quentin Tarantino direct something someone else hasn't written. Has he ever done that? No, 
uh, he's had films he's written that other people yeah. have directed, and he he's done one adaptation because of Jackie, Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown, yeah, yeah. But um, I would love to see. Um, okay, here's a question too: What directors who are living would you love to see a studio go? Here's 150 million. Here's a blank check. Make whatever you want. Ah. Uh... Probably Richard Linklater. I think he would do something really, really creative if he got. Because I mean, he did Boyhood for like a million bucks. Imagine yeah. if you give him two hundred million. He's. I think he's going to do something really cool. The movie he's. I, I guess you'd say it's in production, but I don't know if we're going to see it until twenty forty five. Is the merrily we roll along the Stephen Sondheim musical that he's doing with uh, uh, Jonah Hill's ben sister. Platt. Ben Platt, yeah, yeah and then yeah. Uh, what's I can't remember her name. Beanie Feldstein. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also like the idea of. Well, I mean, I I'm just repeating myself, but I would love to see David Lynch's version of Tenet or yeah. Inception. Like, I want to see David Lynch in his mid seventies be given 150 million dollars to just go batshit. Yeah. Like, like ima- imagine like Twin Peaks: The Return, but like mixed with Inception. Like, that <laughs> yeah. Would, like I just like imagine seeing it in IMAX, like a two-hour. Oh man! I, Transported I, I, to a different reality. Yeah, and um, in a different way. When I say be given a blank check, I I just I wish these filmmakers would actually get funded and yeah. could make films not every ten years. Charlie Kaufman, yeah. uh, Todd Solons. He's joked before, and I think he might not even be joking that every movie just about that he's made has made half as much as his previous film. Oh, like, my God. <laughs> you um, might not Anna, be joking. Yeah. Do you ever see any, uh, either of Anna Biller's feature films, The Love Witch? No. Um, I, you've talked yeah, about she, that one. Uh, yeah, The Love yeah, Witch. Where she just does everything, like not every single thing, but she like writes it and directs it. Mm-hmm. And she, so uh, like does. Robert Rodriguez used to do? Oh, and like she sews the costumes and like oh, makes wow. the the set decorations, and she, you know, edits the films and she composes the films. She or she just does so many jobs, mm-hmm. and her films are so unique. They really, it, it's like far from heaven. It like really feels like a film from the fifties or sixties, mm-hmm. early seventies. But um, yeah, I I'm trying to think is here. And then there's directors that like really had an amazing string of films and then kind of dropped off, like yeah. Jeff Jeff Nichols and Jason Reitman, like. Yeah. I've, haven't heard from them in a while no yeah jason reitman was huge uh with like uh, up in the air and juno and stuff like that but and then he had labor day and <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> and then he had that one with J- uh hugh jackman that like nobody saw uh about the, oh, campaign. About the uh, campaign yeah yeah and i really liked the first three to thank you for smoking juno yeah thank you for smoking is really biting satire uh yeah the first three are really really good it is a shame that he's fallen off a little bit yeah well, anything else we want to add or uh, say about any of these directors? Uh, uh, not too much. Looking forward to see who makes their debuts this upcoming decade. Hopefully there are some David Finchers and uh, Jordan Peels and Greta Gerwig's coming out in the next decade. Um, making films in Zoom. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I, I mean, hopefully we get some, some good films coming out this year. I can't wait to be in a movie theater again. Um not too much else to say yeah we've said too much no, <laughs> yeah i mean I, this is like a two-hour episode so we should probably yeah. go ahead and end it um yeah thank you for listening this has been fun uh, a little yeah, bit different it. yeah thank so, you uh um what's his name 
What's his name? Mr. Robot. Sam Ismail. Oh, Sam Ismail for the idea, yeah. yeah. Yes, and uh, yeah. maybe next time we'll actually do a film review because we have the Five Bloods coming out. Um, so maybe, maybe we'll actually review a new movie next time. So yeah, thank you for listening and we'll, we'll be back with you all next time.